This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by The Alcohol Experiment, a free 30-day challenge designed to interrupt your patterns, give you control, restore your health, and put you back in touch with the version of you who doesn't need alcohol to cope, relax, or enjoy life. More than 220,000 people have already tried The Alcohol Experiment for themselves and have seen improved sleep, increased happiness, reduced anxiety, and so much more. Join thousands in this inspiring, hopeful, and exciting program where you examine your beliefs and reconnect with the best version of you without ever feeling like you're missing out. Start today for free at alcoholexperiment.com. This is Annie Grace. Welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. And I am here with Matt. Welcome, Matt. How are you? I, I'm great. It's great to be with you, Annie. Yeah, you too. It was so fun to meet in real life at um, the two book signings right before we all got locked down. Well, I have to tell you, I'm extremely impressed with you because we met at Holly Whitaker's signing, as you mentioned, and then the Laura's was the next week after. Laura McCowns was one week after, and you like waved at me across the room, and I was like, "There's no way she met like hundreds of people at Holly's. There's no way she remembered me." Um, so you have a very good memory. You're very personable. I really, really enjoyed that. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun for me too. It was cool to be glad we got to do it when it happened because haven't been able to do anything like that since. It's just such a bummer, but. That's right. Anyway, well, why don't you take us kind of back to the beginning in your story? Like, where did where did your journey with alcohol begin? I would love to, but I, I have one question that I want to ask you first. Sure. Um, I've been dying to ask you since I read your book like four years ago. It, the way the book is, you know, you talk about this naked mind is about learning to control alcohol. And at the time that I read it, I was already over the hump not as far as being sober, but I was over the hump as far as the decision. I had recognized it's over for me, alcohol's gotta go. And I don't really remember like what drew me to your book, if it was the reviews or, or what, but I remember, you know, I, I read it with some, some skepticism because I thought, no, there is no controlling alcohol. It's either yes or no, and for me, it's no. And by the time I got through the book, first of all, I learned more about kind of brain chemistry and what's going on upstairs from you than anybody else. It was life-changing, completely cemented the process for me. But by the end of the book, I realized, you know, it's not really about controlling alcohol. And I, I had a little bit, I want to be honest, I had a little bit of angst for a little while. I said, this is kind of a bait and switch. Like, you're, are you trying to sell moderate drinkers on how to not go down the, the slippery slope into alcoholism? Now, I'm a capitalist, so I'm all for whatever you got to do to market your book. I wasn't like mad at you about it, but I, I feel like it's your book is about con, you know convincing people of the reasons alcohol doesn't belong in their life. But to some degree, you market it as here's how you can control alcohol. And I'm, I just I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but how would you answer that? Well, I, I was looking at your website and this is what it says about, <laughs> about my book. It says, this is the single most impactful book for my permanent sobriety. And while I endorse it, I have one huge problem with it. Annie sells it as a book that will teach the drinker to take back control of our drinking and choose to take alcohol or leave it. It sells like other books on moderation management. And I know that to be utter bullshit. <laughs> That's a sales pitch. So Annie can sell more books and nothing more. 
This book doesn't teach us to moderate. It teaches us to despise alcohol. While I respect Annie's right to make money from her work and bend the truth to sell it to alcoholics who believe their cure can include social drinking, I hate bait and switch. Enough lecturing, this book saved my life. So. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You, you kind of mumbled through that last part. Enough lecturing, this book saved my life. I'm super impressed that you did that research. I, had, I did not expect you to find that on my website. Um, but you were prepared for this question, clearly. Yeah, no, I'm super happy to answer it. Um, so it was really interesting. And like, you might not know this kind of part of my story because it's not in the book, uh, but I didn't intend to be an author or write a book or anything to that effect. Like, truthfully, I, um, I was working a big corporate job and I had my job when the book was published and I didn't, I didn't intend to like leave my job or, you know, try to make a living selling books or any of that. I actually, you know, did really well in corporate. My husband was in investment banking. So we were really fortunate and financially just set. I had the opportunity to just kind of invest a lot of money um, into editing it and self-publishing it myself and didn't really expect, like it was really a passion project for me. So that is interesting. And it wasn't, and I gave the book away free um, hundreds of thousands of copies. It was always free as an ebook and a PDF uh, on my website until it got traditionally published by Penguin Random House. And they don't allow that anymore. I still have a, a part in the contract though that says I can give it away free to um, prisons because that's really close to my heart and I think it's really important. So the title didn't have anything to do with marketing. Um, the title had to do with this. Here's the best way I can explain it. If I, I want to be able to, I wish that when I was on the bar stool by myself in some hotel in the middle of nowhere, you know, drinking my third glass of wine, um, that somebody, I would have known what was, what was coming, what was going to happen, or that alcohol was even addictive. To be, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know that. I thought I had the false belief that alcohol was addictive to a very small percentage of people, and I wasn't one of those people. I actually had a friend who went to AA and when she got sober, I asked her about my drinking and I was like, Hey, like I drink as much as you. And she's like, no, no, no. Um, I learned that I'm an alcoholic. I was born that way and you're not. And so I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I can't go to AA because I'm not alcoholic enough. Um, but what am I going to do? You know? And so my intention with the title is twofold. Um, at the end of the book, I say very clearly, like the only way I believe to control it is not to ingest it because there isn't <laughs> what it does to the brain. There's very little ability to truly control alcohol. Um, but I wanted the title to be something that if I was on the bar stool and someone left that book on a table, I would have picked it up. And for me, I would never have picked up a book that said get sober now or stop drinking because that wasn't my intention. And so my book has never been targeted to alcoholics who need to, you know, want to socially drink or, or keep that spirit alive. It's always been targeted to really more people who have caught, found themselves caught in it, but probably don't fit the mold. And so the, and I've had um, so many, probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of people saying, oh my gosh, thank you for titling it that way, because guess what? I would have never picked it up and it, it saved my life. And so, yeah, it wasn't about marketing as much as it was like my goal with everything that I put out in the world is if I was going to walk up to next to you and you're at a bar stool and I sat down 
I'm going to be able to have a conversation with you that you don't get up and walk away from. And you don't get up and say like, oh, well, whatever. So I wouldn't sit down and be like, hey, I'm sober. Yeah. I'd be like, oh my gosh, like another one. Yeah, I know. I totally relate to that. And here's what it did for me, you know? And, and so, yeah, the title was very much in that ilk of putting myself back there before I stopped and saying, what would I pick up? And you're that is why I titled it that. You're able to reach people who are ready before they know they're ready, basically. I love that. And honestly, first of all, the thing I didn't know about your story, I did know about your corporate background. I didn't know that you gave it away for free for so long before it was traditionally published. That's really, you know, honestly, that's exciting to me to know because I have, every time I've recommended it and I've recommended it literally hundreds of times, I've, I've added a little caveat. And I, now after this discussion, that caveat will totally change. And, uh, I love, now I love the title. I love the intent behind it. So thank you very much. For and it. if you want um, I'm, to, I'm doing that again. I have tr- self-published a third book and I believe it's nakedlifestories.com free. Can get the, the book for free. Um, it's also on Amazon, but Amazon, I mean, there's just charges with shipping and paper and stuff. But the right. intention of that book also, it's, it's just people's stories, which I actually think are some of the most impactful stuff. So if there's another free book you want to recommend, that one is always free right there. But yeah, I couldn't, it was such a, it was such a toss up because I'm like, okay, well, I'd have to stop giving it away for free. And we, I literally went back and forth with Paying in a Random House. And I'm like, look, I can show you that more books sell when you give it away for free because of word of mouth. I promise you this is true. This is so important to me. Like, to give it away for free, but I was caught with the fact that truthfully, even though, it, and, and to be fair, just to be really transparent about book marketing, which is fascinating. Um, if you're a self-published author and you're selling a book and, and you're actually, you're an author yourself, so you're getting into this whole world. Um, but exactly. if, you're, if you're selling a book on Amazon as a self-published author, you can make between four and $5 a book. As soon as you traditionally publish, you make 7.5% of the sticker price. So now it's like 90 cents a book, right? So by traditionally publishing, I wasn't going to be able to get away for free anymore. I was going to make way less money on the the copies that people bought, but I was going to be able to do things like be in Forbes and get on Good Morning America and actually reach more people. So it was totally driven by that. And my husband, who's the finance guy, he's like, wow, you're really making an interesting decision going with Penguin Random House, you know, because it's just going to be, you know, so much less actual profit or money. But for me, that's, I don't know, it's it's, like I said, I was really blessed to have been able to make money in other ways. And so this has been, I mean, while it is certainly turning into an organization and we actually can hire people now and have employees and stuff like that, super exciting. It's always just been a passion project. And so, um, but yeah, it, it is fascinating. But yeah, unfortunately, I can't I can't give it away for free anymore. Uh, but maybe someday I'll buy the rights back and, and we'll see. Well, you keep doing what you're doing. I, I think the last time I looked, it's still number one in recovery on Amazon. Top five anyway. I think it's number one, though. So, I mean, it's just it's, it's such a perfect um, way to describe to people what's happening. I was a, I'm a memoir freak. Caroline Knapp is the godmother to me. Oh, yeah. Um, and okay. Sarah Heppel is the god sister or whatever goddaughter um and and i love laura and holly's books as well but but just the 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 explanation i need in addition to the emotional side i need the concrete side i need to understand what's going on upstairs and frankly you know alcoholics anonymous for instance is based on a book that was written 80 years ago and it's a spiritual practice that doesn't have anything to do with brain chemistry 
So I needed, I needed something more. I know you've heard this probably in the millions of times now, this, this very sentiment. Um, but that's why it, it reached me and obviously reaches so many others so uh, in such a special and profound way. Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate that. Oh, All right, so let's get back to you. So I want to hear your story. We haven't had that honor yet, so I'm super excited to hear everything. Yeah, you bet. You know, my story is like a lot of others. Um, it started with alcohol experimentation in high school. You know, I, I was in high school uh, in the 80s. Uh, Nancy Reagan was all over TV telling us not to do drugs, but there was little to no mention of not drinking alcohol. Alcohol was very prevalent in my family, with my parents' friends. It was just a very adult thing to do. It was it was everywhere, quite literally everywhere. So experimentation in high school led to what I like to describe as prioritization in college. Uh, I won't be so cheesy and cliche as to say I majored in booze in college, but <laughs> Man, that, that would be a description that would be fitting. My whole life revolved around, you know, the weekend started on Thursday and it went through watching NFL football on Sunday afternoons, nursing hangovers with beers, and it was just a blur in between. And so everything about, you know, the way I was forming my decision making, that, like I said, prioritizing, it, it was just all centered around alcohol and the, the fun that could be had with alcohol. And then after graduation, you know, I got a, I got a job, this, the, the kind of job that a 2.99 GPA gets you, you know, I, I was, I was a, I don't know if I was a 4.0, but I was an A student in high school. And then by the time I readjusted my priorities to put alcohol first, I was uh, barely clinging to that B average in college. And I look back with a great deal of regret on that. Now there's so much more I could have done from not just an academic standpoint, but participation standpoint. If if my only social and uh, you know extracurricular activity hadn't been drinking, I, I I could have gotten a lot more out of those four years. But I didn't. I got a I got a sales job out of college, and happy hours and daily cocktails became the norm. It was you know in in my twenties. This is really when I first started to have the first glimpses that something was was probably wrong. The glimpses weren't strong enough for me to act on or even really sit down and think about, but I was bickering quite a bit with my girlfriend who then became my fiance, who eventually became my wife. I thought it was normal. Looking back, there's nothing normal about the frequency or the volatility of our, our arguments. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to also get the hints of depression and anxiety, which for me, you know, eventually that was my rock bottom. I didn't, I don't have any DUIs. I didn't, I didn't end up in divorce. I've, I've, you know, no, no big tragic thing has happened. Uh, depression and anxiety overwhelmed me eventually. And, and I was starting, was starting to get pieces of that in, in my twenties, but again, not frequent enough, not enough to, to, to take, even take notice. And again, I, I go back to how overwhelmingly available and just everywhere alcohol is, there were no, there was nothing in my life to tell me, look for these red flags. Like alcohol can't hurt you. I'm not, I'm not the bum that's sleeping in the gutter. That's what an alcoholic is. As long as I'm not that, and I'm not even close to that, there's no reason to consider alcohol as anything, but you know, an, an upside to my life and it, it's something that I enjoy and I'm going to continue to, to pursue. And then my wife and I had kids and that really was a fork in the road. Sadly, it wasn't a fork in the road for me. Again, it wasn't the wake-up call. 
But my wife, who had been largely partying right alongside me until that point, you know, she kind of, we had kids and she started to mature and want to settle down and, and prioritize the kids and have a, a calm life and have Friday and Saturday nights be a, a movie in front of the TV and then off to bed. And I was still ready to rip, roar, and party. And so the relationship really, the bickering had been going on for quite a while, but it, we really started to take a hit when we had kids. And, you know, we suffered. I, I guess I would say that I had about a 10-year period of alcoholism. And as you know, alcoholism isn't a, isn't a diagnosis by a doctor. The only, the, the reason I put that kind of 10-year end caps around it is from the first time that I started to try to quit till the time I finally made it. That was a 10-year period. And so from the first time I tried to quit, you know, there's no going back once you know that you're in trouble. You can try to hide it. And, and so over that decade, I did all the things, right? I, I put rules around my drinking. It's only going to be beer and no hard alcohol, or I'm only going to drink on the weekends. Uh, I'm only going to, I, one of my favorites, I was a big IPA drinker, Annie. One of my favorites is I would limit myself on a, just a normal Friday or Saturday when we weren't going out or entertaining or anything, just, just hanging out at home, I would limit myself to a six pack of IPAs. And at the time I thought that was normal. Now I look back, you know, there's nothing normal about by yourself in a non-social setting, consuming six strong beers. Well, it was so, funny because I started to like IPAs just because of how high the alcohol content was. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. This is a beer with a really high alcohol content. And, you know, I thought it was normal, too, to just look at the wine and, and we'd be like, my husband, I'd be like, hmm, this one's only 12%. It's not going to taste very good. We need like 15%, you know, <laughs> so funny. Oh, yeah, I, I know that feeling. I, I was a big, you know, I was a big guy that said that there's, there's a beer for every occasion. Like, you know, if you're going to a, a baseball game and you're in the sun all day, then then that's the time to drink the Coors Light. But if, if I'm trying to get the the bang for the punch, then the IPAs were, were definitely the way to go. And, you know, I, so I compared it. I compared the IPAs to like just drinking vodka. And I was like, oh, this is much better because I can, I can manage it better. So even though they were strong beers, um, they compared favorably, favorably to the thing that most often got me in the most trouble. So, so I had that 10 years of just struggle. I mean, I would be sober. I made it, let's see, I made it six months sober twice and I made it nine months once. And one of the things that I didn't understand at the time that I think is just profoundly important for people to understand now is that the brain chemistry of alcoholism, the neurotransmitters that are harmed and have to be replenished and have to learn to fire properly again, that takes like a year or more. And so I look back and I kick myself because at some point I made it nine months sober. And if I had just kept going a little longer, I think some of the joy that was gone out of my life would have slowly started to come back. But I gave up. I said, you know, if I'm not cured by now, nothing's going to cure me and I'm still miserable. So again, depression and anxiety were a huge part of my story. And so I thought if, if I'm still depressed all the time and I, I'm still fighting these bouts of an anxiousness, I'm just going to drink because that's better than, you know, living like this. So I didn't understand at the time how long it takes the, the repair of the brain. And so that's one of the things I tell people all the time. This is a patience game. Um, there's things you can do to change your patterns, but, but you've got you've to wait it out. 
so so when I'm in this period of knowing that I need to quit, but I'm trying to put rules around it, and I'm trying to make it work. I'm fighting with my wife. My wife knows it's over. My wife knows drinking is not in my long-term future if I'm going to survive. But you know, she's kind of letting me play this all out and and try to put rules around it and try to make it work. Our relationship's just going to hell. I mean, arguing all the time. Um, I didn't know how bad her feelings toward me were becoming because I'd have a bad night. And then, you know, I might lick my wounds for a day or two and then I'm on the rebound and I'm, I might have a few sober days, but then by the weekend, I'm thinking about drinking again. And, and none of that is clearing up for her. Just every bad night that I have is building the wall between us just that much higher. And, but I, I had no idea. I had no concept of the damage I was doing to my relationship. Yeah. So when it, Finally was time for me, you know, full on, this is it, it is over. AA and 30-day inpatient rehab, neither of those were really options for me. And one of them was a, a misperception on my part. But but first I'll talk about the 30-day the inpatient, which was, I, I thought that was one of the only two options that there were for getting sober. And my wife and I owned our own business. It was a small business. We were in it, operating it. We weren't just back room counting the money. And if I had gone away for 30 days, like it would have collapsed. There was no surviving. So that was just off, off the list. That wasn't an option. Uh, so then AA, I thought at the time was my only other option. I'm so happy and blessed to, to be in this recovery community now and know that there are, are really limitless opportunities for people to find help and find sobriety in a way that works for them. But at the time, I had no concept of that. I mean, AA to me at the time, I think I had what is kind of a popular perception, misperception, I should say, that it, it's a bunch of sad sacks sitting on cold folding chairs in a damp basement, chain smoking cigarettes and drinking bad coffee and whining about their lot in life. And you couldn't drag me into one of those church basements because of that perception. I've since learned, you know, AA has saved more lives really than any other program. And while I, I still have a lot of, I don't know if issues the right word, there are things that don't fit for me with AA, a lot, a lot of them, frankly. But I recognize it as a viable option, and I'm so thankful for the the many, many friends of mine that have, have found sobriety through AA. So I uh, I get it now. I didn't get it at the time. So so for me, uh, the kind of the first component of my sobriety was bibliotherapy, which I didn't know what that meant at the time. I, I just know that when I read, it would make the cravings go away. And so my reading was comprised of about two-thirds memoir and one-third uh, brain science, more uh, medical, you know, clinical stuff. So, and, and your book obviously is right at the top of the list of the, the things that helped me on the, the more clinical brain chemistry side. But I would read every night, like six o'clock, the witching hour, when it was time for me to go pour a drink, I would find a chair in our living room and put on kind of a dim little reading light and my wife and kids, would leave me alone for a half hour, 45 minutes, whatever it took. And I would read a chapter of something and the craving would go away. I didn't understand what that was at the time. I understand that now, Annie, to be a form of connection because I would develop relationships with these writers like Caroline Knapp. I mean, I've read her book so many times. And every time I read it, I think, well, I'm going to skip the anorexia part this time because I, I don't have any eating disorders. I didn't even know how to spell anorexia the first time I read it. But I'm so connected to her and her story. I, I read that section and I cry like a baby every time. So 
I, I've really come to realize that when we talk about the fact that connection is the opposite of addiction, there are different ways to find that connection. And reading was a, it was really a jump starter of that connection for me. So between the bibliotherapy, the learning about brain, brain chemistry, um, one of the other things that I finally figured out was, okay, if this thing's going to take me a year to fix my brain chemistry, I'm going to clear my calendar for a year. And this is something I recommend to people. Look at all the annual events you go to, the things that you would never dream of missing. And every one of them that's alcohol-centric, which is probably going to be most of them, unless it's going to get you fired from your job or get disowned from your family, cross that off the list and skip it for a year. And I know that's going to be hard and painful for a lot of people for a lot of events. But once, once for me, once I got that year under my belt, I'm able to be in any booze-centric, socializing, whatever, with, with little or no temptation and no chance of, of drinking. But the problem that I had before I did that was I, would, I thought I was tougher than the alcohol. You know, I thought I was tougher than my subconscious mind. And I would go to these things. I tell a story in my book my neighbor from across the fence, he invited me to a Rockies game at one point when I was like, Colorado Rockies, at one point when I was like uh, a week or two weeks into sobriety. And I thought about it and he's a big drinker and all his friends are. And I said, okay, okay, I'll go. And not only will I go, <clears throat> but I'll be the designated driver because I'm not going to drink tonight. And that's about as much as I wanted to do as far as explaining at that point that I, about my sobriety. Annie, that was a disaster. I mean, these guys, they drank so much. And I mean, I was just in a three-hour panic attack. And, and I would have left if I could, but I was the driver. So I had to stick it all the way through to the end. It was one of the worst, worst nights of my life. And I didn't relapse that night, but about a week later, I did. That's one of the other things that's just fascinating about alcohol and what it does to our brains. It so demolished my self-confidence and my self-worth that night that that this whole white knuckling and keeping up this uh, attempt at sobriety it, it failed later down the road and i've since seen that in so many other cases and talked to so many other people that have had that happen but so the whole idea of clearing the calendar for a whole year that was really vital to my uh to my long-term sobriety i learned about the nutritional components i mean i i work with a woman named kelly miller who she goes by the handle the addiction nutritionist and i learned that what we eat can cure us. There are things that regenerate those neurotransmitters in our brain. And it's not what you'd think. It's not a vegan diet. I, I'm not anti-vegan diet. I've been vegan for periods of my life, but we need those uh, clean animal proteins to regenerate the neurotransmitters. I had no earthly idea. I was, I was of the mindset when I would get cravings in the evening, I'd eat a bowl of ice cream. And when I say bowl, I mean, it's like a serving salad bowl that I would eat You know that amount of ice cream. But I thought as long as I'm not drinking, that's fine. I didn't understand at the time that sugar and alcohol travel basically on the same neural pathways. And I was keeping those cravings alive. Even if I wasn't feeding them with alcohol, I was feeding them with a substitute that would keep the cravings coming back the next day. So these were all big parts of my sobriety. But the biggest by far was right about a year into my sobriety, I took every email address that I'd ever received from anybody for any reason, business, pleasure, over the 25 years you know, of adulthood or, or that email had existed at the time, basically. And I sent, so I had, I had accumulated 3,000 emails. I mentioned we had a small business, so we had a, a small email list for our business. I sent it to that, that list too. So 3,000 emails that went out that explained that I was a high-functioning alcoholic in, in early sobriety and that I was a year sober and that 
you know, this is my story. And I was terrified to send that email. You know, I expected, I expected some positive and reassuring feedback. I expected support from some parts of my world, but I fully expected to get fired. I'm a high school soccer coach, which monetarily that's not a big impact, but I love it so much. And I did not want to lose that job. Totally thought I'd get fired from that job. Uh, I expected to get some negative feedback. And what I, what I found, every bit of feedback I got was positive. Some of it from places I didn't expect. I mean, if you're sending 3,000 emails, you don't know all those people. Mm-hmm. And I would get emails from people that I couldn't even remember how we had made contact. And they would say, hey, your story is my story. I, I've never told it. I can't believe you did that. But, but we're in the same, same ballpark. And it, it was truly, truly life-changing. The, the, two, the two things that coming out and recovering out loud, I have learned that they do for you. You know, people say all the time, that must feel great to be helping other people. And it does, but, but that's not even really part of it. That's not in my, my top two. The two things that recovering out loud does for me is I've got these deep, meaningful relationships with people now that in the past were just acquaintances. And when I compare the relationships now that I have that I recover out loud, to the ones that I had when I was a drinker, you know, I had lots of friends that I would talk about sports or politics with, but I didn't realize how superficial those relationships are. When I compare them to some of the ones I have now, I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing. The, the depth to which I know some people and, and love people. But the other thing it did was it just solidified it, Annie. I mean, when you tell everyone you know that you're, you know, about your problem, who's gonna, I don't have a bunch of derelict friends, you know, the drinkers in my life have jobs and families and they're trying to hold it together. So if I just suddenly showed up at the bar and tried to drink with them again, they'd be like, nah, get out of here. Like you, we're not drinking with you. We, you told us too much. We know too much. So it has completely solidified my sobriety by, by being out with my story like that. And so that's, that's a huge thing that I kind of recommend to everybody. And, you know, from there, uh, I started writing about uh, my story. I, I started the sober and unashamed blog which that, that eventually transformed into, I've got a small uh, early sobriety program called Shout Sobriety that it, I tell you know, all the, the things that I learned about how to get sober. Your book is the only piece of the curriculum for Shout Sobriety that's an outside writing that I didn't write myself. So you are certainly prominently featured in Shout Sobriety. Um, and then eventually we started a podcast. And every time I wrote or talked uh, on the Untoxicated podcast, that's what it called. That's what it's called. Every time I talked or wrote about my relationship, the feedback would kind of go through the roof. So I didn't set out to to center our work on marriage recovery and relationship stuff, but I found that that was kind of a void. We are really blessed, Annie, to live in a time where there's lots of people talking about their alcoholism stories and their alcoholism recovery stories. I think that's fantastic, but I'm I'm kind of one of many in that area. But when we'll be super honest about, you know, sexual dysfunction in our alcoholic marriage, when I write or talk about that and my wife is, is talking with me, that perks people's ears up. And, and, you know, I get the comment all the time, nobody is talking like this. So we, we did, you know, what I think was natural. We just kind of followed where people were leading us. So that, that's why we, we more and more focus on our relationship. And back, back in April, we started a program called Echoes of Recovery that is specifically for the loved ones of alcoholics. It's not specifically for spouses, but 
the vast majority of the people that join the program are spouses. And I'm not a therapist. I, I'm not a psychologist. Those, those, that doesn't really interest me. This is all about connection. We're putting people together to share their stories. And for the people on that side of the street, the loved ones of alcoholics, you know, Al-Anon is a, is a great program. It's got its ups and its pluses and minuses. Um, pretty much everyone who, who joins our Echoes of Recovery program has experience with Al-Anon. But there's just something different about the connection that forms in our group. It's, it's kind of hard to put my finger on it. It's really honest and raw, and it's kind of a living, breathing thing. And because I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, I'm not there to dole out advice. I'm there to be one of the listeners and to share my story as others share theirs. So that's been a really kind of profound, life-changing thing for my wife and I to, to run the Echoes group. And then uh, September 23rd, our first book came out, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. So that's kind of where we are right now. That's the story, Annie. That's awesome. And so um, did your wife still drink or did she get sober as well? She got sober as well. That's, I'm glad you asked that because that was, when, when I first got sober, I, almost, I insisted that she continue to drink when we would be out socially because I didn't want to look like a bunch of oddball, freakazoid, teetotaler, Bible thumper weirdos. So I would insist that she drink even if she didn't want to. And then that morphed over time. There was a period where I was indifferent. You can drink or not drink. I don't care what anybody thinks. But the more we've learned, the, I mean, all these stories that we hear about the impact of alcohol on relationships, the more we get involved in that side of it, the more, and, and the more we learn about brain chemistry. And my wife knows all this brain chemistry stuff too. There's just no benefit to alcohol for a human being. I mean, it's ethanol, it's a poison. And she's learned that right alongside of me. And, and now she, she just kind of evolved slowly into sobriety. And for her, it's, it's a lot less about what it does for her. I mean, she, she got bad hangovers when she used to drink. She wasn't, a, after the kind of the college period, she wasn't a big drinker anyway. And so she would always kind of weigh, if we're going to this party, I might drink wine, but I'm going to lose half of my tomorrow if I do. So half the time she didn't drink anyway when we were in social situations. But it, it's more the impact that she's seen it have, not only on our relationship, but on these other relationships that she just detests alcohol the way I do now, just completely vilifies it. So she is not a drinker anymore. That's awesome. That's so similar to my husband's story where it was very much like just needed almost to ensure that nothing was gonna change in our marriage and, and not make it his issue. Um, but same thing, once you, once you learn, and of course, you know, I had to have him read the book because I couldn't publish him without him reading it. He's just kind of like, huh, I don't know. And then very slowly, we couldn't even, no way either one of us could tell you when his last drink was because he just has no recollection, really. It just, he knows it's been years now, but that's really cool. Um, and and so you found social life to be much more meaningful, but were, has there been kind of awkward moments that have, have been interesting to navigate? Um, I don't know if I would use the word awkward. One of the cool things about really early sobriety after I sent the emails, I, I was playing soccer in an adult old man's league on Thursday nights. And after the games, we would always go to the pub, right? And have some beers. 
And some of the guys that I, some of the people in my life that I least expected to be super supportive were a couple of those soccer drinking buddies. And I never got out of hand. It was just a couple of beers after the soccer game and we'd go home. It was Thursday night. We had to work on Fridays. So, you know, they didn't get out. They, they weren't extra supportive from the standpoint of, yeah, we really knew you had a problem. It was more like, man, that is so cool. I can't believe you're doing that. And so those are some of the relationships that grew stronger in sobriety. So there were definitely moments that took me way, way, way by surprise. You know, I talked earlier about being afraid of being fired from my high school soccer coaching job. Not only was I not fired, but like a year after the email went out, which my athletic director never responded to, I was at a game with him and I was standing on the sidelines just chatting with him. And he knew I had been writing and he said, so what are you writing about? And I said, well, I, I write about alcoholism and recovery. And he goes, oh, really? I, yeah, I didn't know you, you had a drinking problem. I said, I sent you this email, like, you know, however long ago um, that spilled out my guts. I can't believe you, you don't remember that. And it, it's just a testament to the fact that we, in, you know, the problems that are facing us are so much more important and scary and awful and terrifying for us than they are for the people in our lives. He didn't even remember that I had sent the email. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty comfortable. And uh, again, not awkward, but one of the things I've noticed, like if we, you know, I'm 47. So our socializing is house parties in the neighborhood. Somebody's going to fire up the grill and bring the kids over. And it's nothing fancy at this point. But I found that whereas I used to love those because it was within walking distance of home and I would stay until the beer cooler was empty. Now I got about 45 minutes in me and I'm done. You know, I've, I've talked to everyone I want to talk to and there's no, there's no like draw to stay and have the same conversation over and over again. So it's definitely changed socializing for me. There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that for sure. Um, oh, that's so, it's also interesting. So in terms of like there's been so much discussion recently about, you know, drinking is sort of skyrocketing during the pandemic and stuff like that. Have you had any thoughts of that or any advice for people who are kind of struggling with being shut in and stuck in and, you know, unable to, to get out and about? Yeah, it, it is. It is so interesting. My son, my, let's see, 13 year old, I have four kids. My 13 year old, ran his bicycle into somebody's parked car in over the summer in the middle of the pandemic. He's fine. Everything's fine. But his, his bike helmet, thank God he was wearing his helmet, left a huge dent on the hood of this car. So I don't know why I'm telling you that preamble part, but the woman who owned the car is a liquor distributor. So when we exchanged business cards and she saw mine and I saw hers, she said, well, isn't this funny that, you know, I, I sell booze for a living and you're, you know, pretty anti-booze. This is, interesting that we're going to have to go through all this insurance stuff together but we struck up a little bit of a relationship and she shared with me that the sales of like these seltzers that are all the rage now have just gone through the roof like that's what all these distributors are selling and the reason is because people decide if they're gonna if they're gonna start drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning and drink throughout the whole day it's got to be something low calorie versus whatever their normal drink was because they've just kind of committed to the idea that they're going to drink all day while they're home. And it's, it's just a really, it's a sad, you know, statement on society and the idea that if I can get away with it, if I'm not in an office setting, I'm going to drink all the time. These are the same people that are, think that think they're moderating and think that they don't have a problem. 
And so the tidal wave that's coming at us of problems, I think, is, is going to be huge. But what I tell people you know, who might say, this is the worst time to quit. How could I possibly quit drinking now? There's so much uncertainty. We've got the election. We've got anxiety over the coronavirus. This is a bad time to quit. And I say, you know, I look at it the opposite way. This, this might be the best time to quit because if you get six months of sobriety under your belt in these conditions, that's like, I don't know, three years of sobriety under normal conditions. You've really accomplished something. It's the same thing I tell people as we lead into Thanksgiving and Christmas. Every year I say this, if you get to January 10th when it's cold and dark and miserable and there's nothing more to look forward to, all the things that you were looking forward to are in the rearview mirror, and you've run that gauntlet sober, you've accomplished a great deal, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it easier going forward. So, yeah, I just encourage people to, to get through the hard part, even though this is maybe one of the hardest parts there's ever been in our, in our country's history, because when you come out the backside, you've got something to be proud of. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that reframe. I think it's great. It's, it's really, really cool. Um, the other thing I really wanted to ask you about is obviously like with writing this book about marriage, do you have any tips for people? Especially I did read a statistic recently that was pretty staggering about um, how much more difficult it is to remain married when somebody uh, changes their drinking and like how much more likely you are to less likely you are to stay married when two people drink at completely different levels. And obviously your wife now doesn't drink, but just in general, as people, so many people navigate changing their drinking when their partner is not. Yeah. Did, did, was there a statistic to it? I know you, you read that, but did they, cause I, I'm like so thirsty for numbers on this topic. Oh, I can find it for you as you're talking. I'll find it. Let me look it up. Well, my, my wife's, therapist very anecdotally says he thinks it's like five percent of relationships that survive sobriety so if there's alcoholism in the relationship one member or both of them drinking doesn't really matter and then sobriety enters the relationship it's such that is such a hard thing to survive and that, that rings true for us i mean my alcoholism was terrible it was terrible for a relationship but as my wife says that was kind of the devil she knew so, you know, she had figured out how to navigate that. But when I got sober, I mean, one of the worst parts, Annie, is you expect the sobriety to fix everything and it fixes nothing. All it does is rip the bandaid off and expose the festering wound. So there's a period in early sobriety when, and, and, and I'm speaking of my relationship, but also the many that I've gotten to know now through our work. I mean, it almost universally gets much, much worse in early sobriety for the relationship. And so, I, I mean, I, I believe that there's like a life cycle to the recovering of a marriage. The first step is you've got to get over the resentments. Mm -hmm. And that is very different from the amends process. And unfortunately, people on our side of the street, the alcoholics often think of the amends process as, okay, I said, I'm sorry, it, it's all off the table now. I don't ever want to talk about it again. Let's move on. And for the loved one of the alcoholic, it, it just doesn't work that way. In fact, they've, they've, heard their, they've heard their alcoholic spouse say they're sorry so many times that the sorry is actually kind of painful. It's annoying. It, it doesn't resonate in any way at all. So, and that was certainly the case for my wife. She didn't need to hear me say, I'm sorry anymore. What she needed was to explain to me what happened in some of the, you know, we started 
this resentment process with the very worst cases during my drinking where I had gotten the most out of hand and the most awful things had happened. There, there's one I talk about in the book where we were, we were headed off to vacation the next day. And of course, you know, I'm packing for myself and work is done. So I don't have a care in the world and I'm drinking like a fish. And meanwhile, she's packing for herself and the kids and trying to make sure that they, you know, we got the cat covered for while we're gone. And it's a very stressful time for her. I'm party central already. And by the next, we stayed up all night arguing. It was just a disaster. I drove us to the airport the next morning, had no business driving, turned the car around twice, squealing tires. I mean, traumatic, traumatic situation for my wife and the kids. Well, I had apologized for that. So I thought it was over. But in the marriage recovery process, we had to go through that in, in really, you know, kind of frame by frame detail. I had to understand what her thought process was and the trauma, the true trauma I was causing for her. And not so much, it wasn't a process of me apologizing. It was for me to understand and her explanation and believe that it was true. And then kind of own half of that burden, if that makes any sense. So that she wasn't the only one carrying that trauma anymore. I was carrying it too. And we had to do that for all the resentments, the, the years, literally decades of problems that alcohol had caused in our lives, we had to go through each of those. So that was quite an arduous process. But what we found is it's just a necessary part. If you want to save the marriage, that, that's got to happen. And then, you know, we had to address the kids. We thought we were, we thought we did a great job of pr primarily hiding it from the kids. There were very few times when our arguments, the volume of our voices got to the point where we woke up the kids or we really got them involved anyway. But kids are so intuitive. They could, they could tell when I was moping around the house or they could tell when my wife was mad and they didn't know why. And so we sat down with them. We've done it many times at this point and just asked them to pour out their hearts. And it was very interesting experience. My oldest just let me have it. My second oldest just held her hand while she cried. You know, the, the, the third oldest, he had some, some feelings he wanted to express. The youngest was like, why are we even talking about this? I don't know what's going on. He was just too young. But very therapeutic, very important step in the process. And we've revisited it over and over. So there's the resentment. There's the kids. Eventually, there's the rebuilding of trust, which takes a long time. It, this isn't just a, you know, there I said, I'm sorry. You told me what was wrong. You told me what was bothering you. Let's tear down the wall of resentment. Trust takes a long time. And then intimacy is an entirely different process. In, in our experience, there are two dysfunctions that happen with intimacy in an alcoholic relationship. The one is that the, the physical contact just dries up. It's, you know, this isn't working. We're just not even going to touch each other anymore. I, I think re repair from that is difficult, but it's easier a little bit than what happened in our case. In our case, we just kept going through the motions. So we remain physically, sexually active. My wife despised me. There was no attraction. She wanted, it was a, you know, I hate to use the term, but it was a, it was like a wifely duty. She wanted nothing to do with me. And half the time I didn't know anything was wrong at all. I just, I was, uh, I was satisfied, I guess is the way to say that. Right. And so that caused a huge problem that we're still, you know, I'm four years sober and we're still digging out of that. So the damage done to trust and intimacy, those are long, long-term fixes, but they, they can't be avoided. I'm a firm believer that love, true love and alcohol, at least in, in 
you know, reasonably large quantities, they just can't coexist. One will crush the other every single time. And in our case, the alcohol crushed, crushed the love. And so there's a lot of rebuilding involved in that process. Oh, that's really, really good. I found the statistic. Um, it's the University of Buffalo, and it says if one partner is a heavy drinker and the other isn't, the couples are more likely to break up than if both partners have the same drinking habits, nearly 50% divorce versus 30% divorce when they have the same drinking habits. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I think everything you said is just, you know, really profound and powerful and and just allowing that it is a journey and there isn't a quick fix and the things that you like you just have to be so open and available to things that you don't necessarily see in the moment um so i have two i have two more questions for you well actually three more questions um first we'll, we'll just get out of the way where can people find you what is your website where people can find you so uh sober and unashamed is huh. I didn't design this properly, Annie. There's there's lots of places to find us. Soberandunashamed.com is our blog. The Untoxicated Podcast is our podcast. These all link to each other. But our book, Sober Evolution, which that's a word that I'm big, I use sober evolution in everything these days because I really believe that's what it is. And so it's just sober evolution all run together.com. And, and you can find everything from, from that, that location. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Matt. So that that really actually ties into um, my second question, which uh, you, I, I'm just curious for you, the label alcoholic, you feel like you've really, it seems like you've really embraced it. And you actually have written articles about like wanting it to be um, something that people are not ashamed of at all, like it, it becomes and so I'm just curious if you can you can talk more about that because a lot of people that I've come into experience with like certainly don't want to use that that word and have have seen that term as a hindrance to even asking the question, am I drinking too much? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It, it's one of the many, many diabolical aspects to alcohol. And, and I see both sides of it. I, I I know that there was a time when I was in a place where I wouldn't I wouldn't even talk to you if you wanted to talk about whether or not I was an alcoholic. So the, the idea of, hey, you might be better off with alcohol not in your life, regardless of whether you're an alcoholic or not. So stop, stop trying to figure out whether or not you're an alcoholic. I see the benefits of that. I own the label because I'm big on let's crush the stigma. And one of the best ways to take the stigma out of any stigmatized thing is to own it. Because now what is someone going to do? What are they going to tease me and call me an alcoholic? I already called myself an alcoholic. Like, good luck. You know, there's no, there's no power in the word anymore. So, you know, I, I find it really interesting. We talk about alcohol use disorder. You know, we talk about abusive drinkers. There are so many different ways to describe gray area drinking. We, we have all these different terms that we use to describe people that are having an issue with alcohol. Alcoholic is probably the most old school and abrasive. But... I'll own any of them. I mean, al alcohol doesn't have a fit in my life anymore. And I'm not ashamed to talk about that. And that this really came from this whole sending out the email and recovering out loud. I don't want to, I don't want to spend time arguing about whether or not I'm an alcohol. And one of the reasons, Annie, is I've already wasted so much time on that question. I was one of these people that took the 20 question surveys, every one of them I could find when I would Google alcoholism to determine whether or not I was an alcoholic. And I would answer yes to maybe a little more than half of the questions and no to a little less than half. 
And so I'd finish that survey and think, oh, well, that doesn't tell me anything. I still don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. So I believe that there are two questions you need to ask yourself. Is alcohol causing problems in your life? And these can be large problems or small problems. And then the second question is, do I think about alcohol when I'm not consuming it? And this can be, you know, it's Wednesday and I'm already thinking about the weekend, or it can be it's Wednesday and I'm still filled with regrets from last weekend. So it can be positive or negative thoughts. But if you're thinking about alcohol on Wednesday and alcohol is causing problems in your life, you are one million times better off with alcohol out of your life. So call yourself an alcoholic or don't, it, it doesn't have a place for you. That's great. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I do, again, back to the conversation we had at the very beginning of time is, you know, one of my um, aspirations is to lower the barrier to entry in the conver into the conversation. And I found that that generally is lowered when you start talking in questions, like you just said, like, are you thinking about it otherwise, rather than labels, which people already have a predetermined definition for. So I was really curious about that. Awesome. So let me ask you the last question that I always ask at the end of this is, you know, if you could go back to Matt, who was, you know, peeling out, turning the car around on, on the way to the family vacation and um, all of this stuff, and you could tell him what life is like now, what would you tell him? So I've listened to quite a few episodes of your podcast, so I anticipated this question. But even with that said, I don't know that I've got a good answer, and here's why, Annie. That Matt wouldn't have listened to me. Mm -hmm. That Matt was so arrogant. And, and you know, I, I still am too arrogant, and I work on that. But, but I thought of alcohol as a sign of adulthood, a sign of success. I still remember when my father switched from beef eater gin to tangeray gin, you know, that to me, that meant, oh, dad got a promotion or dad got a raise. Like this is everything. It was a hierarchy. It was, this is a sign of success. There was no downside. So when I was in it, I, I don't know how anyone could have reached me or convinced me. Mm. But, but that said, you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a big rainbows and candy cane and cotton candy unicorns on Instagram and, and Facebook kind of a guy. Like I, I don't get the memes that say, you know, hey, hit the like button if you're going to bed sober tonight. That does nothing for me. Sobriety is hard, especially early sobriety. It's hard until it's great. And when it's great, it's not great in ways that are easy to describe to other people. It's great in a, a, a sense of clarity. It's great in an enlightenment. It's great because alcohol is out of the way now and I can work on other forms of personal development. And I got to tell you, Annie, the math that was a drinker would have scoffed at anyone who talked about personal development. Right. I've done, I've taken mindfulness breathing classes now, and I'm trying to, you know, figure out um, what the future holds, not in a financial sense or a career success sense, in, in a just peacefulness and happiness sense. How do I, you know, I, I'm, I'm Christian. My wife's the, the children's minister at our church, so we're heavily involved in that, but I am fascinated by other religions. I'm fascinated by the Buddhist concepts of living in the moment. These are discussions I would not have been able to have when I was drinking. And so trying to convince the old me or anyone else of the glory of this is really difficult, but living it, I can tell you, this is so much a better place to be than the, the place I used to be. Oh, I love that. That was really well said and it's so true. So true. Well, this has been awesome. So good to get to know you better. And I really appreciate your time. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me, Annie. I really appreciate it. 
Hi, super exciting news. So the alcohol experiment book is being released, actually got released just a few days ago with the expanded edition. What does expanded edition mean? It means that every single day throughout the book, there are deep reflective journal entries that have been added with space to write, which is so cool and so exciting. So you really make it your own. And the reason I did this is because I truly believe that the deepest wisdom you will access throughout the 30 days of the alcohol experiment comes from within you. You know more about what's best for you than anybody else in the entire world. And I know sometimes that can be hard to believe, but when you really access your own wisdom, it is so profound. So you can pick up your own copy at alcoholexperimentbook.com and check it out. It's really powerful. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.